I was uh, looking over my, my schedule and um, I realized that I have uh, four weddings to do this, this spring. It's been a while since, I don't get to do many weddings, but when I do, I kind of lean into them. I did one last night, I got one this weekend, I got one in a couple weeks, and then um, I got another one coming up in June, June 3rd. Some people think that's some big, uh, um, I don't know, is, is it pretty big? I guess it's Anna, our daughter's getting married. Yeah, I know, cry, tear, you know. Uh, but it's like a bittersweet. It's like I can't help feel like I want to hold the door open, okay, and hope. But um, there's another thing in me that uh, kind of is sentimental and don't want to see uh, our first girl kind of move out, which she already has. She's already moved out. They mo- uh, she's moved into their apartment, um, which I thought was great because before Sam moves in, She's going to get it exactly the way she wants, all right? That, that, I'm going to tell you, that's, yes, dear, the two famous words any husband can learn that will cover over a multitude of sin. Um, yes, dear. So uh, we have this wedding coming up in uh, a few months, a few weeks. It's June 3rd. Starting this week and actually a couple weeks uh, previous to this at... Um, we're opening up an open invitation for our church family to, to, be, uh, to join us and help us celebrate um, that. Uh, today is Confirmation Sunday, and um, what's interesting is, is that Lisa, how, that it just brings to mind how grateful Lisa and I are about this, this, this church. John and Anna both came through Confirmation here at St. Paul. Um, went through the youth ministry at St. Paul, and um, now Katie's still on the uh, beginning side of that, and our prayers for all of you in the confirmation process when she gets there. But nonetheless, um, it, it's, it's been our intention, it's been our heart's desire to invite you all and the church family to this. Um, so in order to help us plan, uh, there is in our regular bulletin, the... Uh, one that goes out, that's mailed out, there is a little um, notice down here. You'll see this throughout the next couple weeks. Uh, There's a website on there if you just go and let us know that you'll be there. It's wedding.few.com, wedding.few.com. And there's a place there that you can just let us know that you're going to be there. There'll be a light reception afterwards here in the fellowship hall, Um, but it's a great day. Uh, Sam, her fiance, his dad is a church a, pre, a pastor of a church also, right down the street, the fort. And um, so we got multiple churches involved in this. And so I want to say first come, first serve. You know, I don't know. But no, it would be our honor if you would be there uh, with us. Um, we, uh, we're going to jump into um, our time together. And um, before I do, I want to just uh, have a, a, a word of prayer. Gracious God, I pray that over the next few moments, that what is from you, that you would allow it to stick to our hearts, and what is not from you, that you would allow it to fall to the ground and shatter. I'm honored and privileged that you choose to use broken instruments like me, like singers, musicians, and like all of us, Lord, in uh, uh, ways uh, that are for your kingdom to become proclaimers. Of, of your good news. 
but also, God, just not my words. I pray that your Holy Spirit would do uh, its work in this process also. It's in your son's precious name that I pray and ask these things. Amen. I had the honor to go to a banquet um, for the United Methodist Children's Home. And it was at St. Luke Church downtown, and they had this special guest there. His name was Daryl Strawberry. I'm dating myself once again. Does anybody remember Daryl Strawberry, right? Yeah, thank you. Played for the New York Mets, um, has several different uh, um, uh, awards and World Series and uh, All-Stars and stuff like that. And... um, so when, when I heard that he was coming, I'm going to just be honest here, I was more excited about hearing from him than going to this banquet for the United Methodist Home. So I'm just being honest, but United Methodist Home is a great thing. And I think he came earlier for a Synovus or W.C. Bradley prayer. Uh, he's, so maybe you've heard him. Maybe you've heard from him. Maybe you've heard um, his, uh, his testimony or whatnot. But when I went there, I had the opportunity to actually shake hands with him. And then I asked him, I said, could I get a selfie with you? And he said, sure, absolutely. And I said, listen, this is what I want to do. I want to set up this selfie. I want you to answer this question. If I say to you, you're the, you're the best or you're the man, I want you to show us what you would say backward, uh, back to me if I said those to, us, to you. And this is what he said. And you can almost see him say, no, you the man. <laughs> I think it was security. <laughs> That's what I think it was. Uh, I guess I could make it anything I want. But, um, but, but his story is not unlike many of our stories. Maybe the undulations of his life are more extreme in different ways. Growing up in a broken home um, and he went into foster care. Um, had uh, uh, like a one in a million coming out and playing uh, for baseball, got drafted into the, the bigs and uh, played um, for several different major league teams. And, um, and then afterwards, um, or during that time, just realizing how uh, uh, he was on top of the world and then he went to rock bottom. And, uh, and, and he would share how he would, uh, uh, had a wonderful mother that would continue pray, continually pray for him and pray for him and share the gospel message with him and speaks to her perseverance. And I think that's a, a sermon for another time or a message for another time. But just kind of um, zeroing into his, his story, he would tell when he was in the bigs and in the major leagues that he was, you know, he, he was broken and he was battling addiction. And, and afterwards, after he retires, it wasn't long that he came to the realization that he spent all of his money and was broke and still battling this addiction. And, and through his testimony, he gets to this point where he taps into what his mom was doing for him, and he uses these phrases. He says, God rescued, God redeemed, and God restored me. I, I love that. 
I, it stuck with me, and I just couldn't shake this rescue, redeem, restore, rescue, redeem, restore, rescue, redeem, restore. And, and since we're so close to Easter, it, it my uh, maybe yours goes there too, is that, that God ultimately rescues or God ultimately redeems and God ultimately restores. Isn't that the message or at least one of the messages of the resurrection? That there will be a time that we're going to be ultimately rescued from this sinful nature and we'll be re we were redeemed through the blood of the cross, the blood of Jesus on the cross, and we're going to be restored back to the original intent that God created us without that brokenness, without that sinful nature in us. And as long and, and as much as this is true, I don't think this is what Daryl Strawberry was talking about in his testimony. For him, it was about God rescuing, God redeeming now. God redeeming now, God rescuing now, God restoring now. And he was talking about the implications of not just something down the road, which we all agree with, but something that God is doing right now in his life. And so this will be the topic for us over the next couple weeks. God rescues is today. When I think of, of rescue, I, I think of, of um, I can't help but believe that rescue is really determined by motivation. Wouldn't you agree with that? I mean, you, you, you think about um, uh, EMT or first responders or people who go into the military or, um, and for the most part, you hear their story and, and firefighters or in the medical field, you hear some of their stories and, and they want to help people. They want, their motivation is to help others, to, to rescue them from peril, to rescue them from their, their current circumstances, their current state. And I don't think you really have to be one of those types of people in those areas of occupation or at least life missions, because I think in a sense, if, if you will allow me, I think we will all actually be motivated in one way or another to rescue another. Now, I love you all. And I, I would uh, tend to, um, I tend to believe this with all my heart that if this place was on fire, I'm going to help you get out. I think some of you would do the same. Your motivation might be your love for the other person or your motivation might be that the other person is your ride home or maybe the person owes you 50 bucks and no way, you're not getting out of this 50 bucks that easy. But, but if the result is, is that for most of us, there's this motivation. But I got to tell you, as much as I love you, I'll step on you to get to my family first. Then I'll come back and I'll help you. Now you see a different motivation, motivation of family, a motivation of those who are, are close to us. And so when I talk about, when I think about God rescuing, and that's not the ultimate rescue, but God rescuing now, whatever that might be, and we'll flesh that out in a second, but when I think about that, I got to ask myself, what is God's motivation to rescue me? Maybe you're like me because you can give about a billion reasons or at least the top 10 reasons why he shouldn't 
rescue you. But no matter what I tell you or you tell yourself or even I tell myself, it will never change the motivation as being for God so loved that he gave. For God so loved that he gave. You see, when God placed Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, when God placed Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, he told them three things. He said to them, look around. All this that you see is yours. And he says, now look at me. He says, when you see me, I want you to see that I am yours. That is a theme throughout the Old Testament. Remember when God identifies himself to the people of Israel? What does he say? I am the Lord your God. I am the Lord your God. And he says, one other thing, he says, when, when I look at you, I will see in you a reflection of me. Look around, all that you see is yours. Look at me, I am yours. And when I look at you, I will see a reflection of myself. And what's interesting about this, he does not say this to the platypus. He doesn't say this to the raccoon or the squirrel or the tree. When God came down as Genesis unfolds the story, when God comes down, and, and he creates, after he creates, he spends time hanging out with us. He comes down and he's hanging out with us. Not to get the skinny on what the bear's doing or the lion's doing, but be with us in the cool of the evening. You know what this emphasizes? This emphasizes our sacred worth. It emphasizes God's love for us and the motivation that God has to reach us, to rescue us, is founded upon his love for you and I. Things turn sideways though. In Genesis 3, um, there are, uh, there's uh, sin enters the world. Adam and Eve give in to the temptation of the serpent. And, and, and then I, I think, okay, all right, before the fall, you had this great motivation. You get to hang out with us, right? You get to hang out with people. But then things changed. And then I got to ask, now, what's your motivation now, God. We screwed things up. We went sideways. We turned our back on you. We didn't listen to you. We listened to the serpent who wanted to mar your character, and we leaned into it, believing that you were holding something back, that we deserve something that you weren't willing to give to us. I wonder what God's op uh, options were at that time. His options, he could have started over. When things go sideways for you, how many of you are the type of people that says, oh, let's just scrap it, let's start over? Okay, you can. If that's you, you can raise your hand. All right, thank you. Uh, how about this? I, I give up. God could have given up. Maybe you're that type of person. When things go sideways, you give up, right? <laughs> Pretty simple. Or God could have rescued us. And that's what he chose to do. You see this throughout the Old Testament stories. You can't help but notice that God, through these stories, through these narratives where God interacts with people's lives, men, women, boys and girls, 
that God's desire was not to leave us to fend for ourselves, and his desire was not to give up and start over. His desire was to rescue. And over and over again in these stories, we're reminded of our sacred worth. And I, I, and I searched, and there's hundreds of these stories, but I'll zero in on one group of people called the Israelites. They get taken out of Egypt because of God's great work and how close we are to Passover and, and the Passover lamb and the blood and the Passover angel and all that kind of stuff. And, and that was where uh, the last plague that God had that brought the people, I've convinced Pharaoh. So so the nation of Israel are leaving Egypt, but Pharaoh says, wait a minute, we had it good here. Who cares we might have lost a firstborn, but maybe let's, let's bring them back. And so the Israelites are leaving, they're going to the Red Sea, the Pharaoh's army's coming after them, and God, the people are a little bit worried there, and they wonder, they wonder. Now get this, they just saw these wonderful miracles and in this place of, res of needing rescue, they question, did God bring us out here just to die? Did God bring us out here so he could pull the, the rug out from under us? And while the Pharaoh's army is pursuing them, they can't go back. They can't go forward because the Red Sea is there. And they start complaining, believing that God has given up and he's going to start over. The passage that uh, the Lord tells Noah or Moses to uh, say is, tell them that I will fight for them. All you have to do is be silent. The sacred worth is the motivation of God to rescue you. Yes, ultimately rescue after this life where he rescues and redeems and restores us. But don't forget that he does it now. He rescues us now. And maybe there's a sense of us kind of forgetting the goodness of God. Maybe because Easter is so long ago, and this ultimate rescue that we've always thought about is unknown time in the future, that we have circled the wagons around ourselves, saying that maybe, maybe we just don't. Maybe we just don't make the cut. But then we look at the story of Rahab and we ask, why rescue a prostitute? Or we look at the story of David and we say, why save a cheater and a murderer? Why? Because of his love. His love. You see, when God looks at you, he sees a reflection of himself. Now, friends, here's, here's the tension with this. I really believe 
and I believe that many Christians and followers and believers believe this too. I really believe that we as Christians believe that God can and will rescue us. But it's one thing for us to think that God might rescue somebody else or not rescue somebody else and God actually rescuing me, isn't it? It's easier for me to say that, oh yeah, that, that person deserves it or that person doesn't deserve it. But if you're like me, I kind of look at myself and I wonder, man, you'll never measure up, I keep telling myself. You'll never be good enough. Look, all the stuff and all the reasons why God should not rescue you, then pleth there's a plethora of them. There's so many of them. And so when I go to God and I need rescued, maybe you're like this too, the tension is what happens and what do I do between the time that I give this to God, seeking his intervention, seeking his rescue, and the time that God actually does what he promises to do. Not in the way that we promise, maybe that's a different sermon, but just what God, when, when you go to God and you say, I need rescuing, this I lay before you, the tension that we experience between that time and God actually pulling through. Because it's a waiting time, isn't it? We don't like to wait. And the more we wait, what happens? We start doubting God. We start doubting ourselves. We start having uh, increased anxiety and stress. And maybe sometimes we have a winnowing trust in God, believing that God, you know what, I asked for this. Maybe I didn't ask the right way. Maybe I didn't do it correctly or in the, in the right position or whatnot. And, and then we, we start to believe that God has isolated us. God has abandoned us. And, and we become hopeless we become stiff-necked believing that, God, you don't see what we're going through. And you must not care. And we start pushing back and pushing back and pushing back. It's this meantime, in-between time, from the time we say, God, we need rescuing, to the time God does do something and intervene. It is in this space this time of waiting that is the most difficult for me, is it the same for you? Is it difficult for you during that time of waiting? And maybe you're like me. You have a dozen things that you have brought before God. And you're juggling all of those things and wondering and waiting. What do you do in the meantime? What do you do in those moments where uh, things seem just so out of whack for your faith, for your belief? If I could use this analogy, and then I'm going to use a psalm to, uh, to illustrate this, and then we're going to be finished. My dad and I uh, used to go fishing a lot. And it really wasn't about the fishing. Um, it was really about uh, the time together. Um, we had a boat, and in Butler, Pennsylvania, there is a big lake, and it's called Moraine State Park. And it's huge. It's, it was close to our house, and we would go, and we'd take the boat, and we'd put it in there, and, and, and we'd, we'd fish. 
we had these little uh, fishing rods, and, and we'd put our bobber on, our sinker on, our hook on, and we'd put the worm on, and then we'd throw it out, and, and we'd catch. And we, we caught these little brim or little sunfish. We'd take the fish, take it out, and throw it back in. And, and this was the process over and over again. Well, in the boat, there were a few things that were necessary for safety. Um, there was actually an air horn. There was a problem, you can kind of shoot an air horn or kind of blow an air horn. There was an oar in there too. Um, if the engine went out, you could actually start rowing yourself. And, and then there was this uh, life preserver um, that was a circle. You know what I'm talking about, it had a rope attached to it. And so we're, as I was thinking about that, I, I, um, I wondered what would have happened um, if something uh, drastic happened, and, and I fell into the water. And I'm outside my dad's reach, and, and, I, and, I, and I, if it was my brother, they would have probably just started the engine and went away. Um, but my dad, I'm thinking, you know, what would have happened? Would he have gotten the air horn out? Would he have tried to knock me over the head with the oar? No, he would have grabbed the life preserver, right? And he would have taken it, and he would have held on to one end of it, the rope end, and then he would have taken that, and he would have just thrown it out there, at least close to where I was, so that I could grab onto it. I want you to see that imagery right there. Picture that in your mind. And I really believe that that's the image of God saving us now, rescuing us now from our peril, from our doubts, from our fears, from our neighbors or our coworkers or whatnot. Because at the time I reached out and I grabbed that life preserver, I was not saved yet. I had to wait for my dad to pull me back in. And so slowly, dad would take one hand and pull and put another hand and pull and take another hand and pull. And slowly, I would come closer and closer and closer to the boat until the point where he would reach down, he would grab me, and he would lift me in. Dad lifted me into the boat. That's the ultimate rescue we're talking about after we die. But in the between time, what do we do? If you want a good picture of what this looks like in someone's life, it is David. Over and over and over again, King David talks about this in his Psalms when he writes. Sometimes he'll say, God, my enemies are, are uh, uh, after me. They want to crush my bones. Or in Psalm 69.1, he says, God, the water is up to my neck and I'm sinking into the mud. Where are you? Why are you so silent as everybody else is crushing my bones? I mean, what he's describing is the waiting. The waiting time between our prayer, our invitation to ask God come in, and the time that he actually acts. Psalm 31 is one of them. And what I would like you to do is, uh, if in your sheet there, if you don't mind, or on your card, I want you to write this down. If you broke Psalm 31 apart, you would see verses 1 through 5, and I'm not going to read it. I want you to read it on your own. Verses 1 through 5 is David asking God for help. 
verses 6 through 8, is David's expression of trust in God. In 9 through 13, David said, here is my need. This is the details of my need. In 14 through 18, he talks about another expression of trust. And then 19 through 20, there's a remembering of past help. Now, what's interesting is this, in this, if, if, it, if you don't pay attention, you'll miss this. These verses, 1 through 20, are all directed to God. He is talking to God right back. He says, you, when he's referring to God, he's saying, you are this person. You are the goodness. The goodness, you are, you know, you, you, you. He's talking to God. And this is his prayer for help. This is what he does. But then there is this last verses here, 21 through 24, and this is the confident resolution. And this is not towards God. You'll notice that he is actually referring to God in the third person. So he's talking about to somebody else and referring back to God. Now, this is what I want you to do. In this in-between time, I want you to ask yourself, will God rescue? Can God rescue? And now I want you to name whatever that one thing is. Whatever that thing that is, that person, that situation. Maybe it's something you have been dealing with with years and still waiting. What I want you to do is I want you to voice your own Psalm 31. It doesn't have to be verses or anything like that. But in the first section, I want you to write a prayer for help. Just overarching, God, help, save me. And then the next section, I want you to express your trust in God. I trust you. I truly believe that your steadfast love endures forever. I truly believe that you have a motivation that is, that, that your motivation is love and you will rescue. And then I want you to get into the details of your need. And then the next one is the expression of trust once again. Once again, just, just like you did in the verses 6 through 8, I want you to express your trust. And then 19 and 20... I want you to remember past. I want you to go back and think of all the ways that God has saved you, intersected with your life, did something that you could not do, or just reminded you that you were loved in some glimpse of grace. But the confident resolution, this is important. Because it's one thing to actually write a prayer that nobody else will see. And it's, it's easy for you to even doubt after you write that, that you really meant it or that God is really going to do something. The confident resolution is this. Then go tell somebody about your prayer. Talk to somebody else and tell them. Verbalize it. Because something happens inside of us all that once we verbalize something to someone else, that person now can hold us accountable. And when we start walking towards the ledge of believing if God is, hey, look, it's my fault that this all went sideways, God. When we start walking to that ledge, we can be reminded, hey, 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 remember. Remember who God is. Remember your expression of trust and your confidence in him. Let this be a, a task or an instrument to remind you 
of what God, of God's motivation to step into your life. Now, again, it may not always happen to work out the way you want or whatnot, but that's, that's not the point. Because the tension that we experience between our problem and the resolution is we doubt God. We doubt God, his love, his presence, and we become hopeless. This is in the in-between. This is where we lean into on that. If you doubt any of this, just consider the love of God expressed through Jesus Christ who lived, who died, and he rose again. That we all could be with him. He didn't do that just to pull the rug out from under you. And didn't do that to bring you to a place where you would be wandering in the in-between. God rescues, God redeems, God restores. Gracious God, I pray that as we live into the significance of what this might mean for us, I pray that your Holy Spirit will will, uh, illuminate and interpret for our own hearts and our own minds. We pray, O God, that you would continue to speak to us and remind us of your greatness, of your goodness, and your presence. It's in your name we pray. Amen.